Let's go to John chapter 18 this morning. Now you'll notice that your notes are a little bit different today. There's just a big blank space for your notes. Uh, but there's all this supplemental material down here that I would encourage you to read through this week. Um, it's kind of uh, uh, given a, a category and then some passages after that. Um, I would just encourage you to, to chew on those things this week because of the nature of our topic uh, and its, uh, its impact. And, and I, just, I didn't want to... What did it come down to? I thought those scriptures were more important than any outline I could give you. So you'll have to make your own notes and then uh, read on those scriptures this week. Okay? For some supplemental material on the, the, the issue that we face today. Okay? How much is our free will exercised and how much is the sovereignty of God exercised? Specifically, when we come to this individual that we see in Scripture, in chapter 18, Judas Iscariot. So if you're able, will you stand with me, and I'll read a portion of John chapter 18. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Spirit would come upon us and open our eyes today, that we might understand this that it might fill our hearts and that we might walk away with a, a real sense of peace and understanding, that we might see you in a clearer light, might see your grace and your sovereign purposes in everything that happens. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 18, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and st struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Jesus, therefore, said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink of it? This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now there is an apparent, and I say apparent, 
because it is, it is our difficulty, it is not a difficulty of the Lord's. An apparent discrepancy concerning the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. On the one side we have God's providence. Westminster Confession lays out the, the entire theology of God's providence in this way. God who created everything also upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing, from the greatest to the least, by his completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purpose of his own will, all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And those that quote comes from... Uh, supported by Hebrews and Daniel and Psalms and Acts and Matthew and Provident, Pro, Proverbs and Chronicles and Romans and Genesis. The sovereignty of God and his providence is laid throughout the entire breadth of Scripture. Now on the other side of this, we have the free will of man. Again from Westminster, it says, When God converts a sinner and brings him into a state of grace, he frees him from his natural enslavement to sin. By God's grace alone, freely given, the sinful man is enabled to will and to do what is spiritually good. However, since the old sinful nature also remains, the believer cannot consistently or perfectly will to do what is good, but also wills evil. And we see that in Colossians and John and Philippians and Romans and Galatians and the epistles of John, 1st and 2nd John. So God in his providence, on the one hand, controls everything. Man, by God's grace, is given free will, but exercises it in the midst of his sinful nature and in the midst of the grace that the Lord grants him. Now, are God's sovereignty and man's free will, are they mutually exclusive, or can they exist side by side and even intertwine? Well, we see in Scripture... From just from some things that we have read there and then passages of where this view of providence and the view of the free will of man comes from, it is laid out. They exist side by side throughout the breadth of Scripture, from Genesis all the way through until the end of the Word of God. We see this demonstrated in the lives of the believers, both of those who are, who are believers in the Word and those who are not believers. Uh, some of the places where it's, it's exercised in non-believers' lives we see, as example, that you have the, uh, uh, the people of God, the Old Testament, uh, have been uh, disobedient. So the Lord chooses the Assyrians to discipline them or to bring God's judgment upon them. And what the Lord does is he takes the Assyrians, who are by their nature aggressive and conqueror types, and he turns them loose on his people. And so he allows them, or, or in a sense ordains them, to come and to discipline his people. And then after he has done that, he punishes them later for invading his sovereign people. Okay? So we see that the Lord exercises his sovereign plan in the punishment of his people. He's, we see the free will of the Assyrians, but we also see God acting in the Assyrians' life to punish his people. And then because the Assyrians were bad, the Lord punishes them. Is that clear? Uh, good. Somebody's clear, clear for somebody. Good. Okay. And we see this in the life of Judas as well. Now, now the Assyrians are entire people. Judas is simply one individual who has freely 
chosen an action to betray the Lord, but his freely chosen action fulfills the sovereign plan of God. So let's look at Judas a little bit. Turn back to chapter 13. Judas had a little bit of help in this action. A little bit of help. John chapter 13 Let's start in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had said this, this is the Last Supper, they're all reclining at the table. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples to whom, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us, who is it of whom he is speaking? He, leaning back thus on the Lord's breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? And we think that the Lord just kind of said it to the disciple whom he loved, John. Jesus therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. That's a frightening little phrase there, isn't it? And Satan entered into him. So we see that this was at the same time. A, an action of the free will of Judas, but it was also at the same time a part of the possession of Satan because Satan has entered into Judas while at the same time carrying out the sovereign plan of our Heavenly Father. Because you see what Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. What you do, do quickly. Now we know that Judas has already conspired uh, from the other Gospels we see in Matthew and Mark and Luke with the, with the chief priest and the leaders of, of the Jewish uh, synagogue, etc. He's met with them. He has bargained with them. He has said, I'll betray Christ. And how much would he betray him for? 30 pieces of silver. What, was 30 piece, what would 30 pieces of silver buy? A slave at the going rate of the day. We see that also foretold in the Old Testament, that it would be 30 pieces of silver. But now we have a point of decision, just as, in a sense, faith uh, grows and, and we can look back and see how the Lord brought us along. We are seeing how, in a sense, Satan has brought Judas along, but also how Judas has willingly given himself over more and more to the things of Satan. And it has come to this point. Satan has found a very willing agent in the man Judas. And he serves, in a sense, as a counterexample to the things of Christ. Satan, Judas is a willing agent of Satan. Christ is the willing agent of the Father, both carrying out the will of the Father. And Jesus <coughs> tells him to go and do what he's about to do. Okay? Judas doesn't get up and say, I've got work to do, I'm leaving. Jesus, Jesus sends him out. Go and do what you must do and do it quickly. 
He's not commanding Judas to sin, but rather he is commanding him to get on with what he is going to do. One way or another, go and do it. The time is here. It's time to take action. So it's interesting that both Satan and, and Jesus are giving Judas commands. But what do we find? They're the same commands, right? Satan is telling Judas, betray Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Judas, go and do what you're supposed to do right now. Go and do what you're supposed to do. Satan is saying, Judas, we've got to get him on the cross. And Jesus is saying to Judas, Judas, it's time for me to get on the cross. Go and do what you're doing. And do it quickly. Now let me give you a little background on Judas just as an individual. So we have a, a little bit better picture of him. Judas, uh, the name Judas carries a stigma with it. We see in, in uh, the New Testament often there is another Judas, but he is always listed as Judas, not Iscariot. Okay? Uh, so that way you don't confuse the two because especially in the time that the New Testament writers were putting this down, nobody wanted to be associated with Judas Iscariot. In fact, in the list of the disciples in the Gospels, he is always listed last. He is always listed last or listed as Judas the betrayer. Now, there were other books that were written uh, this time that describe the life of Christ, and, and they're not canonical books. They're not in the New Testament. There is one in particular called the Coptic Narrative, and it has Judas, after betraying Christ, and, and I'll try to put this as delicately as, as possible, became infested with um, maggots and, and just kind of uh, bore the consequences of that, and then they were trying to get him out of town, but he had become so infested that he was, um, um, how do I say, it's too wide to get out the gate. So he scraped on the gate and exploded there in the middle of the gate, okay? That was from the Coptic narrative. Uh, we see in Scripture it doesn't say that's what happened to Judas, but, you know, that's the picture of Judas that we get from other writers of that time because Judas was so hated. They came up with all these bad ends for Judas. They wanted to make him out simply as bad as they could. Now, it, it, for the human eye, it's kind of hard to figure out how it is that Judas spends the same three years with Jesus as the other 11 did. He saw the same things. He heard the same words. He was out in ministry with the others. But yet, he, as they grew closer and closer to Jesus, he grew further and further away. Now, there's a lot of discussion that he was... Uh, had these expectations that Jesus would overthrow the Roman government and he would bring the sword and then he became disillusioned that uh, Christ was not going to do that. So he, in a sense, turned on Christ in that fashion. Um, but whatever it was, we understand that Judas was exercising his will always in accordance with the sovereign plan of our Heavenly Father. So you might ask, why did Jesus even choose Judas. To start with, turn over back to, uh, let's go to chapter 17. Jesus' choice of Judas to be one of the twelve was not an accident, as if the Lord could do anything simply by accident. It was furthering the purpose of our Heavenly Father that was set from all time, for it was His plan that Christ would give his life as atonement for our sin. Chapter 17, verse 12. 
He says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. So he says, I kept them safe. The only one who is going to perish is the son of perdition, which is Judas. And what, for what reason was that? The end of 17, or the end of uh, chapter 17, verse 12, that last phrase, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay? He didn't come to what? Undo the law of the prophets. He came to fulfill them. We see this time and time again, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus acted in this fashion. The world was ordered in this fashion because the scriptures had foretold it would, because it furthers the purpose of our Heavenly Father. Judas didn't surprise Jesus. He knew every move he was going to make. It had been predestined in a sense from all eternity that this would work out this way woven into the prophecies of the Old Testament. But we cannot separate Judas's part in the death of Christ from the free actions of Judas's will. Okay? We can't separate his part from his exercise of his own free will. Even though God had planned it, even though it was of a divine origin, Judas would fit into the body of the twelve and betray Christ, yet it was not apart from the desire of Judas. So it sounds like I'm saying mutually exclusive things, that it was Judas's free will to do this, but yet at the same time it was the sovereign plan of God to do this. Hang on for a while. Let's look back at our passage, John chapter 18. Now remember John's purpose in what he writes. His purpose is that you will believe, that you'll come to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you will believe. So he presents information in a fashion that will further the purpose that he has in writing this gospel. So John is not focusing upon the humanness of Christ when he goes to the garden. We don't see things like the sweating of the great drops of blood. We don't see anguish here. What do we see? We see Christ in control. We see Christ ordering these events. There is nothing that is happening in the garden that is not according to the perfect will of our Heavenly Father. Never is Christ out of control of these events. Never is he dragged along by what other people are doing. And we'll see this as we look at this, this section here. We don't find anything degrading. We don't find anything humiliating about Christ and his actions in the garden. But we see things that promote his deity. We think, see things that promote that he is the one ordering the events. Everything that goes on at the arrest of Jesus, as John puts it, glorifies him. It glorifies him as the one who is the son of God. Now remember that Jesus is leaving Jerusalem during this time on the night of the Passover. So it's the Passover season. And during the Passover season, people would come from all over Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice. This is the Day of the Atonement. This was the time where you had to get there and had to do this so that you could, by your sacrifice, being atoning for your sin. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament and the Passover and the Exodus. We understand that all these things fit together and how, why is it happening on this week? Because Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb, whose blood will be spilt once and for all to atone for sin. 
Historians write that, and I understand there are tens of thousands of people have come into this area. So historians write, and, and this is, this is uh, just a few years after, probably in the 50s, they're, uh, AD, they're looking and, and counting the number of lambs that were sacrificed during the Passover season. They get somewhere around a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed during this season. Now just think about that. A quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed because you had to bring your, your own lamb or you had to purchase one or if you couldn't afford it, you could purchase substitutes that were of lesser value but the Lord had taken all that into consideration. But when you get a quarter of a million lambs, you get quite a mess. Okay, you get quite a mess. Well, the Jews had figured that out. So when they built the temple, there were these big um, uh, vats or something to hold the, the blood from the sacrifices. They also built uh, what, what I can only call a channel that went from the temple and went out through the walls and down into the valley of Kidron, which is off to the side um, of Jerusalem down there. And there was a brook or a creek or what we call Pennsylvania a creek. Okay, and it's a creek down there, and that's where all the blood went. Because it went out of the temple and down and into the creek, and it flowed away. It could be taken away. Now understand that to get to the garden where Jesus was going, he had to go across the creek. So imagine that he is he's stepping across the creek, he is seeing this massive amount of blood come down the creek, and he can't help but fix in his mind that this is the last time this ever needs happened. Because my blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. I am this lamb. Now, whoever else understood that at this time, I, I don't think anybody really grasped it, but Jesus himself. Well, Jesus went there to the garden because it was a familiar place. And we see, let's look at verse 2. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had met there often with his disciples. Jesus did not go into hiding. He went to a place that was, in a sense, made it easy for Judas, okay? Because he didn't want to be controlled. He didn't want events to be controlled by others. He was controlling them. He goes to the place that he knows Judas can find. He goes to the place where he will easily be found. Now, uh, look closely here at the end of verse 3. They came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What do we know about when we set the date of Easter. It has to do with what? The full moon, okay? So let's look at, with that in our context, let's look at this with that idea. Are they good? You know what it's like to go out in your backyard when there's a full moon. You can almost see your shadow from the full moon. And here they bring torches and lanterns as if they're gonna to have to search and Jesus is gonna be hiding in some dark nook and cranny. Jesus is standing in the garden waiting for them, okay? He's not hiding. He's waiting for them. Why is he waiting for them? So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. These things have been foretold. Judas is, is the instrument <coughs> acting in his own free will, yet he is fulfilling the scriptures. Now, beginning of verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, so he is, in a sense, leading this group. Now, we look at the word cohort. Uh, cohort, the Greek word there, is spira. And if we go back and dig through, we find that a Roman cohort, or spira, 
contain approximately 600 Roman soldiers. So if we say that that was the average, think with me for a moment. Here is Judas, here are some of the Jewish leaders, and 600 Roman soldiers who have come to root out Jesus, this troublemaker. And yet Jesus is waiting for them. And he bring, they bring this great entourage up to see Jesus, and they don't get to say anything. Jesus goes to the front of the pack and says, whom do you see? Okay, Jesus is not waiting for them to find him. He comes to them and says, whom do you see? And they answer, Jesus the Nazarene. Now look in verse 5, and if you have a, a pew Bible or your Bibles translate this way, you'll see. It says, I am he, okay, and he is italicized. That means that, I, that the he is not actually there in the Greek, but it is assumed to be there. So what he actually says is what? I am. Where, where have we seen that before? Oh, yeah, Moses. That's the name of God. He said, who shall I, if they ask me, who shall I, who sent me? <coughs> this is Moses asking. God says, I am that I am. It is a, is a statement of being. It is a statement of eternality. And Jesus says, I am he. And Judas also who was betraying him. Now you would think that Judas, having already received his money, would take it and go. But John has a specific purpose in listing him as still being there. Okay? And you'll see this in just a second. <coughs> And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. Therefore, he said to them, I am. And what happened? Boom. They all went down. Okay? They went down at the name of God. Who's in control of this situation? Jesus, okay? <laughs> Jesus is. Now, why didn't the disciples, why didn't he pitch the disciples earlier and just go himself? He wanted them to see this. Understand that they are going to be scattered soon, but he wanted them to understand his power and his authority in this situation. So they are all standing behind him, and Jesus says, I am. 600 Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders all go down. Boom. Such is the power of God. Such is the, the will of the Father and the will of the Son. They have come to get him. They don't have any power to get him. Okay? All he has to do is say one word and they fall down. They have no authority. They have no power. Jesus has it all. Remember he says what? I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down and he lays it down willingly. John is showing us all of these particular things. No crying, no blood, no sweating drops of blood, nothing like this. Simply the power of God. Because it is his will that these things happen. But it is also Judas's will that these things happen. For he, in his mind, has planned these things. He has betrayed Christ. But yet his betrayal furthers the perfect will of our Heavenly Father. Furthers our perfect will of our Heavenly Father. There is, uh, there's way more in here. And, and I would encourage you to dig through these passages that I have laid out here. I'm just going to cover one more thing here. Or two passages, two more passages. Turn over to Isaiah 53. I know we've been here before, but we've got to go again. Isaiah 53.
Judas's desire and the exercise of his free will fit within the sovereign plan of God. God did not make a little robot out of Judas and tell him he was going to go and do this. He simply gave him over to his own evil desires, and he has pursued that. And though that pursuit by Judas of his own evil desires furthered the perfect will of our Heavenly Father, for it was his will from all time that his son, Jesus the Christ, would give his life in this fashion. We've seen that in the garden. Christ has orchestrated it. He has ordered it in that fashion. It is demonstrated. They have no power over him. He gives his life freely. 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, spitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10, look at page. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It was the Lord's will that this would happen. We can't say that all, you know, events got out of control. No, from prophesied some 600 years earlier, it was the Lord's will the death of Christ should happen in this way. It was the Lord's will that on the cross, it was not the pain of crucifixion, because we understand that crucifixion is a death by suffocation. It was the weight of our sin that was so painful on Christ. And he says, I'm going to the cross. Judas, you're going to be a part of this, but nothing can stop me from going. Because our salvation depends on it. Our release from this burden of sin depended on Christ giving his life for us. It was the hand of God at work. It was the plan of God at work. Acts chapter 4 talks about God's hand and plan in this very action. And we think, couldn't God have saved us in a different fashion? Couldn't the love of God have been demonstrated in a fashion that did not require the death of his son in such a terrible way? The betrayal of someone who was so close to him by someone who was so close to him with a kiss. Judas could have simply appointed and said, there's Jesus. But he walks up to him and kisses him. We in our humanness ask these questions. But yet apparently it is God's highest demonstration of his love for us that his son should willingly give his life for us. And a love like that doesn't register in our world because a love like, the love that we understand in our world is, is often, it's me-centered or if it's somebody else-centered, it's only centered on them for a certain degree. But the love that God has for those who belong to him is completely outside of our grasp. He would give his son willingly, determined from all eternity that it should happen in this way. And that is the highest illustration of his love. The death of his son for us. So let's pray.
Lord, we often think that evil sometimes runs rampant. There's chaos in the world, and, and are you really in control? And then we look at things like the life of Judas, and we look at things like, like this night before his crucifixion, that you are in control. We don't always understand it or see it, but yet you are in control. How is it that evil seems to run rampant sometimes? How is it in certain parts of the world, in certain parts of our country or our neighborhood, or even sometimes in our own lives, evil seems to run rampant? But yet you are in control. These things do not happen willy-nilly. They do not happen by fate or by chance. We see in the life of Judas at the betrayal of Christ, we see how an individual's desire for evil and action to that end can yet serve your purposes. Lord, we, we don't want evil in our life to work to serve your purpose. We don't want evil in our life, period. We want to cleanse, be cleansed of that. For your word says that your grace is more than sufficient for us. There are things that each of us face. Perhaps might not to the end of Judas, that we would get to the point where Satan would come and indwell us, but there are times where we give over control of our lives, it seems, to things that, that are not godly, that are, that are not Christ-like. Lord, we don't want to do that. We want to put those things aside. We want to flee from those things and cling to the things of Christ. So that the exercise of our free will is towards the things of godliness and holiness. The things that give you glory. The things that bring you praise. The things that, that, that demonstrate the love of Christ in, in what we say and what we do. Lord, help us examine our own hearts today. To determine where these places are so that we might put them aside, so that we might simply walk away from them and pursue things of righteousness and justice, things of holiness and peace, the things that bring you glory and praise and honor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.